The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing where this week, as every week, we are working so hard to be your public radio source for the information and probably just as importantly, inspiration to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And definitely the hottest topic of the moment. No questions asked. Every RIA I go to, every place in the country, I hear the same thing. How do you find the deals? There's no deals in our MLS. People are paying too much for the deals. And as we keep saying here on Real Life Real Estate over and over and over again, if you got a pond and there's too many fishermen around the pond and too many poles and too many lines in the water and the fish are getting scarce and also they're getting suspicious and they're not biting anymore, the the um str- the strategy is not to double up on your poles the strategy is go find a different pond and that is largely what we are talking about tonight is a pond that you might not know about because very few people do hey you might not be willing to do the work to fish in the pond but if you are it could be a source of deals that your competitors are just like totally clueless about. So my guest tonight to discuss this strategy is Joe Lucas, who is an attorney. His practice is focused on real estate matters, and he has a six-attorney firm with offices in Dayton, Cincinnati, and Canton, Ohio. He graduated from Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania Law School and served in the U.S. Air Force for practicing law. But More importantly than all of that is the fact that he is a real-life real estate investor who himself practices the strategy of finding and buying zombie properties. Joining us by phone is Joe Lucas. Joe, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Vina. How are you? I am doing awesome, Joe, and I hope that you are as well. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me tonight. Well, I am very glad to have you, and of course, we'll we'll explain after the next break... uh, you know, the reason why tonight, as opposed to any other uh, show where you would be welcome, because I love it when people find themselves a niche that uh, they work on and perfect and find out about all of the practical parts and all of the legal parts. And you have done that with something that we sort of halfway jokingly call zombie properties. Can you Explain for listeners who may not have heard that term before what it is you are looking for. Sure. Um, so if you drive through a, uh, a city, whether it be Cincinnati or Dayton or Columbus or Cleveland, there are uh, 
various neighborhoods, some of which have uh, a number of uh, vacant properties in them. And especially during the recession, the number of vacant properties multiplied. And if you looked at these properties, um, many of them would be in good condition. They wouldn't uh, be boarded up. They would just be empty. They might have some stickers uh, on some of the windows or doors, um, either from the city or from a mortgage company. Um, but they wouldn't be for sale and they wouldn't be for rent. And so, you know, you could easily drive through one of these neighborhoods and conclude, oh, there's no value in this neighborhood. Nobody wants to live here. Look at all the vacant properties. But it's not that the properties wouldn't sell or wouldn't rent up if uh, they were available, but they're simply not available because they have title issues. And the title issues that they have are they have mortgages that were taken out before the crash, and the mortgage balances are significantly in excess of the current market value. And when the market value fell, uh, the, the owners walked away. Many of them lost their jobs. They stopped making payments and walked away from the houses. And the banks also walked away, and they failed to foreclose. So the property simply sits empty. Uh, the original owner still owns it. They're not making payments. They're not living there. They're not renting it out. And the bank as well has done nothing. Uh, typically, they don't uh, file a foreclosure on these. And if they do, sometimes they'll process the foreclosure for a while, and then they'll realize the error of their ways and that it doesn't make sense economically for them to pursue it. And at that point, uh, they dismiss the foreclosure. And so essentially what they're waiting for is they're waiting for a different liquidation event for the property to, to be sold. Um, and that would be a tax foreclosure. But what happened is a lot of these counties, they were overwhelmed with delinquent tax parcels, and they uh, held back on filing foreclosures for sometimes five, six, seven, eight years. So these properties simply sat empty for years at a time when, in fact, there is demand in the marketplace either to rent or to buy them, uh, but there's no way for the typical renter or buyer to be able to access these properties. Mm -hmm. So, and we're going we're going to come back around to some of the other stuff you just said, because there was a lot there. But I think the, the problem that I have explaining to civilians why these properties occur is that they don't get the economics of it. They, they don't sure. get that in, in markets all over the United States, it's not just in Ohio, but in markets all over the United States, in neighborhoods typically where there are older houses, so properties built often prior to 1950, sometimes prior to 1900, the the economics of a bank's foreclosure versus what that property is likely to sell for should they foreclose on it are just all upside down. You're exactly right. And, you know, if you think about the cost of a foreclosure, I've done foreclosures uh, for clients who are who are plaintiffs in foreclosures. They are the party that owns the mortgage and they want to foreclose. And uh, to do a foreclosure from start to finish, you might spend three or 4000 on attorney fees. You might spend 2000 on court costs. You might spend 500 or or 1000 on title costs. So that doesn't look too bad. That looks like six or seven grand. It's not too bad. The problem, though, is uh, a lot of times these properties come with a significant amount of back taxes, and which get paid ahead of the mortgage company when the mortgage company forecloses. So there might be five or 10,000 back taxes that gets paid ahead of them. In addition, the mortgage company most likely will end up buying it themselves at the auction. And once they buy it, they will then have to resell it. They'll end up paying a realtor a commission for two or $3,000. They'll have to pay a property stabilization company to come in and cut the grass and winterize the plumbing and change the door locks. And so you start adding up all of the expenses in the mortgage company's cost structure, 
And after a while, you realize that they're going to put up fifteen to $20,000 of their own cash to try and foreclose on a property that maybe in the past was worth sixty or 80000 but right now is only worth twenty or 30000 And you know, properties tend to sell at a discount uh, when they're bank-owned because everybody thinks that the banks are desperate to sell them, and so they go in lower. So the bank recognizes that for many of these properties, there's basically no recoverable equity uh, for the bank to go and get. And so the bank says, look, we're not going to put up money to only get back the money that we put up. That's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Why not just wait for you know, the, the county treasurer to do a tax foreclosure? And in a normal economy, a tax foreclosure might happen in two or three years. But when the, when the counties are overwhelmed, uh, they've held back on doing tax foreclosures. And sometimes it depends on the property, but it, they've waited as many as five and six and eight years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's some there's some other things at work here too. The whole everyone remembers the robo signing scandal and how that ended up generating a lot of money for states from from the uh, class action suit against the banks. But what was behind all of that was that there there was this there was this mess made in two thousand called two thousand two to two thousand eight where uh, mortgages were transferred around between banks with no real documentation. Nothing that anybody had their hands on. And in some of these cases, the problem is that the bank that owns the mortgage literally does not know they own the mortgage because they 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 took over a failed bank or they bought it as part of a package from Fannie Mae, but they didn't get all of the things into the computer. So literally, in some cases, there is no one that knows to foreclose. You're absolutely right. And... Um as part of my law practice, I file uh, lawsuits called uh, quiet title actions, which are designed to uh, essentially force the bank to put up or shut up and ask it asks the court to release the mortgage if the bank is basically never going to foreclose. Well, um, in many cases, when you file a quiet title action, you have to name the, the proper party. The proper party has changed two or three or four times. And a lot of times, the party that appears to be the owner of the mortgage, because the most recent assignment um, the most recent assignment of mortgage names them as the S&E, they're out of business. So you, you, you have to go to another party. So like if Bank One looks like the S&E of the mortgage, Bank One is not in business anymore. They're now part of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. So you would have to serve J.P. Morgan Chase. Well, what's interesting is when banks, uh, when healthy banks purchased the failing banks during the financial crisis, the uh, the federal government uh, essentially provided some backstop against losses on a lot of the loan portfolios that they ended up acquiring. And so the banks don't have a strong incentive in many cases to try and uh, collect on these accounts. They just kind of took them over and they serviced them, but they, they don't do anything more than that. And um, the the mortgage crisis was partially caused because you have a securitization of these mortgages where you're breaking up the right to collect mortgages uh, into these little uh, uh, things called tranches, and then investors buy tranches. So one investor might buy the first 10 cents that gets collected, and one investor might buy the last 10 cents that gets collected on a loan. And you know, and there's different risk profiles, and there's pricing, and it's very, you know, a complicated situation. But at the end of the day, there's nobody um, 
really trying to enforce these mortgages in many cases because of a number of factors, but uh, both economic in terms of how much it costs them to enforce it and also um, legal in terms of who actually has the right to enforce it. And with these mortgages that were securitized, oftentimes it's very difficult to determine who even has the right. And so when, when a bank gets sued in one of these quiet title actions, for whatever reason, uh, it they never respond. They don't know what to do, um, or maybe they do know what to do, and they're making a decision not to respond. But uh, in many cases, they don't respond. Very good explanation for why some of our some of our cities here in Flavor Country are full of these zombie properties. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about the other side. We're going to talk about what happens to the owner of these properties who thought he was being foreclosed upon and never was. We're also going to take your calls with questions for attorney Joe Lucas at 877-772-9658. Or you can send us an email, just send it to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, talking today to attorney Joe Lucas about a strategy that he sort of stumbled upon and then worked on and now knows more about than anyone I know in the entire country. And that is getting zombie properties uh, out of the hands of owners who don't want them and banks who don't seem to care about them and into your portfolio. Joe is the featured speaker at tomorrow's tomorrow night's Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati meeting. Uh, he's going to talk about exactly this, give some examples, show you some of the um, things that can come up during the course of the event. Of course, be there for you to talk to. Uh, that You can download a free guest pass for that meeting at CincinnatiRIA.com or just RSVP and say you're coming. If you want to come early at the 6 o'clock meeting, you'll pick between two sessions, one on how to improve your credit score for the purpose of getting lines of credit and why lines of credit could be super important to your real estate business. Or if you're more of a new investor, there will be a concurrent session about uh, the basics of buying properties without banks. So that's uh, 6 o'clock for the early meeting, 7.30 to see JoeCincinnatiRia.com to RSVP or download a first-time guest pass. So, Joe, there's, there's, there's another side to this. I mean, you're, you're telling us a story about how the banks are just kind of, they're either not paying attention or they've made a deliberate decision not to do anything with these properties because they are, they're just going to be throwing in good money after bad. Effectively, it's going to, they've already, they've, exactly right. they've already lost bunches of money. Luckily they've been bailed out by the American taxpayer. So why lose bunches more money when I'm not getting any more money from the government to do that? Right. Um, on the flip side of this though, there is the title holder. There's, there's the person who is the owner of record of this property and who also has long since walked away, you know, as you said, not living there. Uh, many times when I find these properties, they, the, the owner never lived there. It was a, um, a rental property to them. And they are often surprised to discover that they still own these properties. You're right. And, a lot of times, uh, so for myself, as an investor, I have I have all these rentals, and uh, because of that, occasionally people, they throw trash in my lawn or whatever, and I have to go to housing court. And in Dayton, when you go to housing court, uh, typically one-third to one-fourth of the parties that show up at housing court uh, will tell the court that I didn't even know that I still own this property. 
and I shouldn't be responsible for cleaning it up because it was foreclosed upon back in 2012. Um, and what they really mean is the bank filed a foreclosure back in 2012, and I walked away and never noticed whether they finished it. And of course, in the, in their case, the bank didn't finish it. Um, so a lot of folks don't realize that they still own these properties. Um, and in fact, sometimes when you when you identify these properties and you contact the owners, they'll tell you, "I don't own that property anymore," and they'll hang up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's better it's better to do business face to face because people are a little more polite, and they also they'll let you talk more than thirty seconds. Um, I've lost out on several uh, opportunities over time because um, people are convinced of what they know, and they're not really willing to listen to somebody. That, who will tell them, hey, there's there's a little bit more information that you don't have. They've already made up their mind about how things are, and they don't want to participate. But but there are many people out there that have these properties. And what's interesting is they're not all um, um, unsophisticated parties. And many times you have folks who own five or ten or even 20 or 30 rental properties. And uh, during the uh, Great Recession, they had to file bankruptcy because they were just so far underwater on what they had. And when they walked away from their properties, they expected the banks to come and take them. And in in several cases that I've seen, the banks came in and they foreclosed on a few of them, and then they left the rest. And then the owner who uh, had filed bankruptcy, they moved out of state, they moved to Florida and retired or whatever, and they're still getting all these notices. Mm-hmm. Or or no. they're not getting notices because they closed the P.O. box that they used to get all the mailings for their rentals because they didn't have the rentals anymore. And the city or the, the, the county is sending notices and they're coming back. And, of course, the city and county don't make any real effort to track somebody down for something as minor as a huge building order or a tax bill. And the, it's it's interesting, again, to, to, to talk to folks who've never they've never dealt with these owners and they say, well, why wouldn't they want, I mean, if, if the bank isn't going to come after them for the payment, why don't they rent them? Why don't they fix them up and do something with them? And the answer is mentally, they're just checked out. Right. And perception is key here. So, you know, um, think about the value of something like if, if you have a car and your car has always been unreliable and never worked right. And now you can't get it started. What's it worth? It's not worth very much. If I'm a mechanic and I can go in and I can identify what the problem is with your car and I can fix it and then your car runs great, your car is worth more to me than it is to you. You will sell it cheaply to me and then I will fix it. And then once I've fixed it, the fair market value of that car is much higher. Well, with these properties, the properties come with liens. The liens exceed the the fair market value of the property. So the property owner looks at the property and says, I can't sell it for what I owe on it. And even though they may have filed bankruptcy and gotten a discharge, they they don't see any value in the property. And so they they just they've walked away. And if if I get the property, like if I uh, approach one of these owners and say, hey, I see you have this property at 123 Elm Street, I will give you $100 for it or $500 for it. A lot of times that's great because they have they have a perception that they have no equity in the property and in reality and in legal reality oftentimes they don't because these liens that exist on the property exceed the value of the property but the the secret sauce that i have is i have the knowledge that certain banks uh in certain situations have essentially walked away from their lien and by filing a quiet title action against the bank i can get the lien released now i've also 
I've done a lot of these properties. I have even been blessed with banks who voluntarily, without even being sued in a quiet title action, they voluntarily release their liens. And it's a, you know, it's a wonderful feeling. It saves you some money. Um, but these, these banks, they've made a decision that they're not going to pursue these cases in many cases, uh, either that or they're simply not answering their mail or reading their mail. But either way, um, which I think it's probably more of the former and less of the latter. Um, I know I have the secret sauce. I know that I can get this large lien released. And so a property that was worth $80,000 10 years ago, it might only be worth 35 now. Uh, and if I get it for 35000 subject to a large um, mortgage, then I'm, I'm in a situation where I'm underwater too. But if I can get rid of the mortgage... If I can get rid of the mortgage, then I own a thirty-five thousand dollars property, subject to only perhaps five or ten thousand dollars of back taxes. Uh huh. Uh huh. And there's one other there's one other thing that that I want to sort of bring out a little bit more as something that's working on your side as someone who wants to acquire these properties, quiet the title, and put them back into service. But it's working against both the banks and the owners, and that is the cities. They are so yeah. anxious to uh, charge charge owners to own vacant properties, right? A lot of cities now have these, they call them anything from, uh, you know, vacant building maintenance licenses to um, board up fees, right? And they're huge. They're, they can be, here in Cincinnati, it's $900 to buy the license. That doesn't pay to board up your building. That's just to buy the license. And if your building's vacant the second year, it doubles, and then it doubles again, and then it doubles again. And, of course, if you have long grass here in Cincinnati, it's like a $500 ticket. And all of these things are accruing to the owner, who doesn't, is not even aware of it in many cases. And if the bank were to take the property back, if the owner were to say, here, bank, have this deed, right, <laughs> which is another way to transfer a property to a bank, the bank wouldn't take it because they don't want to be responsible for the fines, fees, licenses, penalties, et cetera, on a property that they see as having no value. You're absolutely right. And the the counties and the cities, they feel like they're doing something positive by trying to prod the existing owners to do something. And the problem is, is that the existing owners have checked out they're not going to do anything. And so what ends up happening is, is as these fees accrue, the fees that accrue, uh, get added to the property taxes, and the balance gets to the point where even an investor who can get rid of an old mortgage looks at the property tax balance and says, hey, this has a twenty or $22,000 property tax balance. I can't touch that. And so the investors are no longer interested in the property. And so now some of these counties have programs that are like, uh, I think in the Montgomery County and Dayton, they have the lot links program and they have depositor foreclosures. But essentially, the private market can no longer uh, digest that kind of property. It has to go through a government program that strips off the uh, delinquent property taxes and any assessments. And without stripping off those delinquent property taxes and assessments, the the property tax balance is too large, and investors simply take a pass and move on to the next property, even though the condition of the property may be quite fine. Very good. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're then going to answer some questions that have come in from listeners via our Real Life Real Estate email address at askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V, like in Victor, E-N-A, at gmail.com. You can also call in with your questions about the strategy of 
uh, buying zombie properties at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Joe Lucas, an attorney who uh, is in the Dayton area, but also operates in other places in Ohio. And and Joe, that that's uh, one of the questions that we just received on askvina at gmail.com is from, uh, I think, Molly May. It's all one word, though. Molly May, I'm going to say. And she says, it sounds to me like these would be rarer in a market where, like the one that I live in north of San Francisco than they would be in the Midwest because the properties would have more value. Is that your feel for this? Yes, that's correct. Uh, if you're in uh, the, the Bay Area where I guess you have median home prices in the high six and low seven figures, or even in the surrounding suburbs like um, Marin County, you wouldn't expect to see the same kind of uh, behavior by banks. Basically, uh, Dayton and many of the other Rust Belt cities were blessed or cursed, or I don't know how you look <laughs> at it, but we're, we're blessed with a particular type of market, a price point, let's say fifty to $80,000. That's what things were selling for prior to the crash in 2007, 2008. And once the crash occurred, you had properties selling for less than 35000 And if you look at uh, the mortgage markets, mortgage companies, like if you go to a bank or you go to a mortgage broker, they really don't like to write mortgages below $35,000. You know, it's normally in that thirty to $40,000 range that there's a minimum that they'll, that they'll ever consider. So from a, from a resale perspective, from a, um, uh, from a refinance perspective, you know, the, the banks just don't want to be in that market because, you know, you look at, uh, a loan broker, you know, he's going to make one or two percent or whatever on a on a loan. Why in the world would he want to make one or two percent of thirty or forty thousand dollars when he can spend his time making one or two percent of a hundred or one hundred and fifty thousand? So essentially, the market dropped. Uh, these these properties essentially dropped out of the uh, the the mortgage market uh, price range, and that sort of. Uh, um, created a situation where you know the the banks just felt like they were justified in walking away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and we should also say just sort of along the lines of of helping people picture what these properties are. They're typically going to be in BCD areas and B would be hot. I mean like if I found one of these in a B area, I would be so excited, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I'm I'm mostly finding them in like C and D areas. You can you can find them in um I would call them the some of the better areas of Dayton, not the best areas, but so uh, Dayton, for those of you who are familiar, the city of Dayton has about 140,000 people, and it's surrounded by smaller communities that typically have anywhere between five and 20,000 people. And uh, the very nicest suburb of Dayton is probably considered Oakwood. I've never gotten a property there, but uh, probably one of the second or third nicest communities is Kettering, and I've managed to get three properties there. Um, another nice suburb is Huber Heights. I've gotten two properties. Um, uh, probably over half of the properties I've gotten have been in the city of Dayton. But just about every other jurisdiction, unless it's a, uh, I want to say, homogeneously middle-class jurisdiction, you can typically find things. Because even even areas that are that are nice, like Kettering, they still have some neighborhoods that are cheaper where properties go for twenty five or thirty five thousand dollars. They're not extensive. They represent a small percentage of the, the total, but there are some of these properties out there. Hmm. Interesting. All right, let's go to the phones and talk to Scott who is calling on line one from Indianapolis. Scott, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. 
Hi, thank you. Um, I was very interested in this, and I was wondering uh, if there's a typical cost associated with uh, hiring an attorney to do a quiet title action. Mm-hmm. Now we're gonna I'm go- gonna have Joe answer that question. But remember, you need to go find someone who, when you say quiet title action, doesn't say a what, because if you if you do, you're going to end up paying a lot more because you're you're basically paying them to train themselves on no. this whole process. <laughs> so, so uh, Joe, what what do you think would be a reasonable cost? That's a good observation. So, quiet title action. In order to win one, you have to file a complaint, which is uh, probably two or three pages long. Um, well, first you need to do a, a title exam so that you know what liens you, you need to release. You need to uh, prepare and file a complaint, and then uh, most of the time, probably 90% of the time, you're going to win your quiet title action by default. By default means that the defendant, the bank that holds the mortgage, doesn't respond, and the time period for their response passes without any uh, motion or, or answer being filed by them. So once that occurs, you'll have a motion for default judgment, there'll be an entry, and then there'll be an order to the recorder's office ordering the recorder's office to release the uh, uh, mortgage that was the subject of the quiet title action. It's not truly, I mean, I hate to say it, it's not that hard, especially if you've done it before. Uh, And so for an attorney, it's probably about four or five billable hours. Billable hour rates tend to vary in communities. Uh, We tend to have a little bit lower rates in Dayton. so you're probably looking at, uh, depending on the attorney and, and uh, what their rates are, somewhere between $800 and $1,000 in attorney fees. Um, and then also you have um, some court costs and you have a uh, filing fee of, let's say, another $400. So probably altogether anywhere between uh, twelve and $1,500. Um, you can pay more, but um, truthfully, the, the work that's involved is probably about four or five billable hours, assuming that the, uh, the action goes to a default judgment. Okay. And if it doesn't, and it takes uh, a little bit more than that... Uh, well, if it doesn't go to default judgment, there's there's two possibilities. So the the defendant, the bank, a lot of times they will file an answer and a disclaimer of interest, which means that they're answering and they're saying, you know, we're not ignoring this, but we just don't want the property. We don't have any interest in it. So if they file that, then you'll still get an order from the court releasing the mortgage. And so you've won. It's not a default judgment, but you've gotten what you were looking for. So you, st- you still get this order from the court releasing the mortgage. You can record that order, and you're golden. The other possibility is that the bank could answer, and they could say, yeah, we have a valid lien, and uh, you know, and it's valid, And in which case you don't get a, an order from the court releasing it. But normally when the bank answers that way, and that's relatively rare, but I'd say about 10% of the time they do answer, when they answer – Normally, the next thing out of the the bank's attorney's mouth is, what will you give us to release it? And in my experience, uh, they're not looking for a lot. They're looking for something, uh, but not necessarily uh, anywhere close to um, uh, either fair market value or, um, you know, uh, the the face amount on the mortgage balance. So the the opportunity is there uh, in many cases to get a very substantial discount, um, even if they do answer. Um, and you're more likely to see an answer if the mortgage is being held by a debt collection company that relatively recently acquired the mortgage. If it's owned by a mortgage company that's owned it for the last 10 years and they have, they've gone five years without receiving a payment, they're much less likely to file an answer or, or take an interest in this, uh, in this uh, mortgage.
right. Very so interesting. Not as bad as you thought, right, Scott? Well, um, <laughs> no, I was, uh, I'm a little bit surprised, to be honest with you, so... Uh, I'll, I'll continue listening. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And, and thank you, Scott, for asking the question the way you did, which was, how much does it cost me to get a legal professional involved in this legal action instead of the way a lot of real estate investors would approach the question, which is, how do I personally spend my time and go pro se in front of a court against a great big bank and try and do this myself and probably mess it up? So good thinking there, Scott. Pay somebody else to do it. Now, um, Joe, the, the thing that we have not really outlined for the listeners, and I know like, tomorrow night at the RIA meeting, you've got you've got slides, and you you know you've got the ability to actually have visual aids and whatnot, is the order in which these things happen. Because Troy, who is from uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, just a place I would guess might have some more of these, uh, is asking, do you do the quiet title action before or after? you give the owner money and take over the title? You do the quiet title action after you take over title. And so this is one aspect of real estate investing that people tend to be uh, uncomfortable with. And what that is, is uh, it's like uh, buying a, a uh, vehicle that doesn't run. It's kind of like buying a house that doesn't have a uh, clear title. And people are uncomfortable with the concept that they're buying something and they don't have clear title. And uh, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I go to bed every night in a house that I don't have clear title to because I have a mortgage on it. And in, uh, gosh, 14 more years, I'll own it. Um, so, but the, the houses that I acquire in my real estate investing, they are different than the house that I live in. The house that I live in, I took out a mortgage on and I've been making payments. The houses that I'm acquiring, I'm acquiring subject to the existing mortgage, but I'm not personally promising to make the payments on those mortgage obligations. And in fact, the the bank, I know on my house, if I stopped making payments, they would probably initiate a foreclosure in four to six months. On these properties, the banks haven't been paid for years, and they have either failed to ever initiate a foreclosure, or they may have initiated one and then thought better of it and then voluntarily dismissed. So... Um, folks are oftentimes uncomfortable with the concept of, well, what if I give a guy $500 for a property and then I file a quiet title action and the bank says, oh, we have a valid lien and they won't release it. And the answer is, number one, you got into the property very inexpensively, probably for less than the cost of the closing costs on buying it for fair market value. So you're getting into it very cheaply. Number two if you fix up the property and get it rented, and as long as you get these properties that aren't too far gone, you can typically fix them up for less than $5,000, uh, at least here in the, in the, in the Dayton market. Um, you put your $5,000 in and then you rent it out. It would take a bank more than a year to file a judicial foreclosure and take it through to auction. And because of that, you can probably collect enough rent in the time period that a foreclosure would take place that even if you paid for the property, you fixed it up, and then the day after you finished fixing it up, the bank filed a foreclosure, you could still get all of your money back before the bank would be able to complete a foreclosure. So the risk to the investor is relatively small. Um, and also, if you do this kind of investing, uh, you may want to think about it in terms of the odds. It's kind of like uh, kind of like an oil company. You know, they, they, uh, they drill oil wells, and not every oil well 
results in them striking oil. But they know that a certain percentage of the oil wells will strike oil, and they know that when they do strike oil, it pays off handsomely enough that it pay, it more than pays for the cost of exploration and, and occasionally drilling a dry well. And each of these properties that I've gotten uh, has essentially been an, uh, an oil well that I've, uh, that I've drilled, and believe it or not, the great majority of them have paid off. I really have had only a very small number that I haven't been able to do anything with. Um, normally, what happens is, is uh, I acquire these properties without uh, looking too much at their condition, and occasionally I get some that are in too rough a condition, and so I end up uh, uh, re-gifting them to, uh, to other worthy souls. Um, but in many cases, um, in most cases, I would say, you know, if you look at the property from the outside, you can have a general sense of, you know, how the property is doing. You make an assumption that there's going to be the normal types of uh, repairs required on the inside, repairs to plumbing and electric and, and HVAC. And uh, the more of these houses that you get, kind of the more um, systematized you are. And uh, things don't seem to be as uh, intimidating as far as condition. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've got a pile of questions that have now come in on askmean at gmail.com. Before we get to them, we need to take one more quick break. And uh, when we come back, we will answer your questions at, from askmean at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Mina Jones-Cox. And clearly this topic has raised a lot of interest as as it should. I mean, you know, it's one of those things that there are probably 10,000 people listening to this show right now, either either live or on the podcast. And I would bet money that not more than six of you are actually going to take the steps to pursue it because it's not what all of your friends are doing. But what all of your friends are doing is not working. That's why they're all complaining about they can't find any deals. So question from Roy, who is in Wichita, Kansas. He says, are there any specific uh, criteria that you look for in homes you target for quiet, quiet title or specific areas? Yes, and that's a very good question. So how do you find these properties? So initially what I did was uh, I just went to a real estate investor meeting and told people that I accept free properties <laughs> and people would come out of the woodwork and give them to me. And uh, um, seemed kind of strange, but uh, I started looking at and categorizing the properties and the circumstances that people would give them to me, and then I started looking for them. So the first thing that I do is I drive around and I make a list of vacant properties in an area. And uh, in Dayton, it's not hard to find, so you can probably uh, in a morning drive around and get 50 addresses. The next thing that I do is I look on my county auditor website, and it may be something different in a different state, but in Ohio, it's the county auditor that uh, um, assesses the value of your property, and uh, you can also see a, a printout of how much back taxes are owed. So I look at the county auditor website. I look to see if the property has a tax delinquency. I'm typically looking for a tax delinquency of at least two years. And what that tells me is it tells me that neither the owner nor the bank that holds the mortgage is paying the taxes. And if nobody cares about the property, then nobody will pay taxes on it. So that's a good indicator. Another thing that I look for is I look to see um, if there is a mortgage, in fact, on the property. In Ohio, we have a county recorder, and the county recorder uh, in the bigger counties like Montgomery County, where I'm located, uh, Dayton is in Montgomery County, those county recorders have searchable websites, and you can search for the owner name, which you can see on the auditor website. You take that owner name, you search for recorded documents, and you can see if there's a 
recorded mortgage and you can pull up the document and you can see what the original balance on the mortgage was. Now, I don't know what the current balance is, but I can speculate. Uh, based on you know how quickly mortgages get paid down, most of the time when people get 30-year loans, they don't pay down a whole lot uh, in the first few years. Uh, another thing that I look for is I look to see if a foreclosure has been filed. Again, in Montgomery County, we have a clerk of court that has everything online, and you can go to the clerk of court website, and you can search for the owner name, and you can see if a foreclosure case has been filed. If there's no foreclosure case, that's great. If there is a foreclosure case, then I look to see was the foreclosure case dismissed or is it currently active? If it's currently active, I don't want to touch the property because I know that the bank is going to complete the foreclosure and there's nothing for me to do there. Um, another thing that I look for is I look to see if the current owner of the property has filed bankruptcy. There's a federal court website called PACER, P-A-C-E-R, PACER, and you can look up uh, a party's name and you can see if they filed bankruptcy. You can see if they included their mortgage in the bankruptcy or whether they reaffirmed it. If they reaffirmed it, then that means that they're planning to make payments. If they haven't reaffirmed it, then they're probably planning to walk away. Um, so um, in each of these cases, I'm looking for indicators of the right kind of person. Um, so the right kind of person is somebody who has walked away, who's not living there, doesn't have a tenant in there, is underwater on their mortgage, the bank has not foreclosed, or they have abandoned a foreclosure, and ideally, the owner has filed bankruptcy. And the reason why I say ideally is because uh, if a party transfers you the house and there's still a mortgage out there, if the party has not filed bankruptcy, then they are still on the hook, hypothetically at least, for that uh, indebtedness. And so um, if they've gotten a bankruptcy discharge, they're not on the hook. So ideally, you want somebody who has gotten a bankruptcy discharge, because otherwise it is possible, though unlikely, that their uh, mortgage lender could try to pursue them personally for the debt. Now, most of these folks are uh, not in a situation where they're collectible, so it may not bother them, but um, you don't want to receive a frantic phone call six months after you acquire one of these properties, and somebody says, oh, I got called by the bank, uh, that kind of thing. So you need to be careful about looking for people who are in a situation where transferring the property actually makes sense for them. So ideally, they have a Chapter 7 discharge. Uh, also, it would be ideal if they don't have a discharge, if they are uncollectible, meaning like they're retired and on Social Security, so that they're not subject to uh, wage or bank garnishment, that kind of thing. Wow. Okay. So folks who just heard all of that and are going, wait, 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 what did he say? Please remember that Real Life Real Estate is also podcast on iTunes. And you are going to want to go listen to the podcast, rewind that section and write down everything Joe just said, because that is the sort of thing that only comes with years of experience in a strategy and thinking about it, right? Just kind of going through in your head, well, what could happen if, what could happen if, what could happen if? And that was some important stuff right there about the uh, uh, the borrower, the seller, either being uncollectible or having already declared bankruptcy on the debt that we're talking about here. Because that's something, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks would not think about that or they'd gloss over it. <laughs> they, they, they'd say, ah, nothing can ever go wrong with my strategy. So uh, good stuff. Um, back up and listen to it again if you have to. Uh, I have an email here from John, who is from Columbus, Ohio. He says, when you, uh, when you do this, do you use an entity to buy the property? Is it a quit claim deed? 
that you get and, and then uh, before you do the quiet title complaint? Uh, it certainly could be a uh, quick claim deed. Um, a lot of people um, distinguish between uh, general warranty, special warranty, and quick claim deeds. Um, the, the issue that you've got is if you get a general warranty deed, you really shouldn't be getting a general warranty deed unless you list the mortgage and the back taxes as exceptions. Um, and if I were the seller and I were transferring the property, why, if I'm, especially if I'm only getting 100 bucks or 500 bucks, why in the world am I going to warrant something? Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of these people, they're not in a financial position where if you sued them for some kind of indemnity, they could even pay out. So is there any value to a warranty deed? I would tell you the answer is no. Um, there's a misperception, I think, in the title world that uh, – you know, if if a property has been transferred by quit claim deed, that it you know it's no good or it's not as good or whatever, all it means is that you don't have a right to sue the seller or the or the grantor on the deed uh, if there's a title defect. But in most cases, the grantors are uncollectible, so you wouldn't want to sue them anyways. Uh, in the title world, we tend to uh, we have uh, title insurance, and if if the if the grantor sells the property to you and and you and the buyer buys title insurance and there's a problem, you make a claim on the title policy because the title insurance carrier has a pile of money to pay out claims. The the grantor typically doesn't. You know, most uh, private private citizens don't have a whole lot of money to pay out. Uh, you know, some kind of indemnity if there was a a title issue that was uh, found at a later date. Mm-hmm. Now um, let's let's uh, wait. Let's back up for a second for our listeners who are outside of the state of Ohio and say do check with your local title attorney because I know it, it, Tennessee, for instance, you can't buy title insurance on a property that is transferred via a quitclaim deed. So and that may be true. I'm only licensed in Ohio. Uh, and in my experience, in Ohio at least, uh, you can get title insurance on a quitclaim deed. So, um, uh, My experience so as it, well. I, but it's it's different yeah. in other states. So we've got a national audience here. So let's just make sure that they understand yeah. they need to go. What was the, uh, Pina, what was the second part of that question? Um, uh, did you, do you use an entity and do you uh, do a quick claim deed? Okay. I don't personally use an entity. You can if you want to. Some people are concerned about having their name being out there. Um, I'm, a, I'm an attorney. I'm trying to bring in business. So the more my name gets out there, the better. So <laughs> I use my own name. But... There are many other uh, people who who choose to use an LLC. An LLC uh, is a is a legal person who can have possession of a property and therefore be eligible to file quiet title under the Ohio statute. One thing I would point out is that uh, quiet title uh, comes originally from the common law, but it has been uh, enshrined in statute in most states. And therefore, what you can do with a quiet title action will vary somewhat from state to state. So I can't guarantee. I have not done a survey. Um, I can't tell you that this would work in every state in the union. Um, it certainly it works very well in Ohio. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Joe, good stuff. We are unfortunately out of time, but everybody who's within an easy drive of Cincinnati can come and talk to you more and hear like more of how all of this works. At the Cincinnati RIA meeting tomorrow, that's Thursday night, August the 17th, uh, you can find out more information and download a guest pass at www.cincinnatiria.com. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.